Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Well, happy Easter, Dwelling Place Church. We're so glad that you're streaming with us this morning. I would never in a million years have thought this is how I would spend Easter 2020, but here we are. We've now officially been on lockdown in our nation for about a month And I know some of you are probably starting to go crazy, a little stir-crazy to say the least. I heard someone say that this during this time, people's mood at home toggles between moments of boredom and then moments of panic. My family, I know, has taken more neighborhood walks in the last few weeks than we have in all the years leading up to this. And that's been great. But still, I'm not sure if this quarantine is is harder on extroverts or introverts. If you're an extrovert like me, maybe right there in your In your room, you can raise your hand. Uh, Of course, it's hard on us because we have nobody to talk to, right? We want to see people. But introverts, for those of you who are introverts today, uh, it's difficult on you and you're frustrated when you're trapped indoors because you're having to talk all day with the people that didn't just raise their hand. So it's rough on everybody, and yet we're we're hopefully making it through. I've found... uh, a few perks in the quarantine. I have uh, started running again. I, I took many, many months off. I've started running again. But on the flip side, I'm also eating more junk than I've ever eaten in my life. My goal in the, the quarantine is simply to break even, okay? Which is always my workout goal, by the way. But I'm definitely trying to avoid the quarantine 15. Some of you have already turned the COVID-19 into the COVID-25 or 35. And uh, the reality is there is a lot of time to eat. But this quarantine has revealed to me four things. Number one, I love to eat out at restaurants. Okay, it's revealed that. Number two, I actually like going to church. I love going to church. Number three, anything that is, is, is deemed non-essential by the government, I want to do, right? And number four, touching my face. I flipping love to touch my face. Some of you right now just touched your face, and I'm not going to touch my face, all right? So y'all pray for me right now. I really, really want to touch my face. So our circumstances this year, they find us in a... In a much different place to celebrate Easter, but our message is the same. Christ is risen. He is risen. Now, I want you to take a moment just to let that sink in. You know, yes, our churches may be empty today, but so is the grave. And you need to feel the good news of that. You see, if this is true, COVID-19 can only hurt us up to a point because Jesus took the sting out of death. Christians get sick and they die just like anybody else does, but death is not bitter or terrifying because when Jesus got up out of the grave, he got out victorious over death, over disease, over cancer, over COVID-19, and that, my friends, is the good news. There was a tradition in the ancient church that on this day, if believers encountered each other on the street, one would say, Christ is risen, and then the other would respond, he is risen indeed. So I want to practice this morning right there in your home. I'm going to say, Christ is risen, and for those that are in here, you can do it with me, but I want you to find somebody in your home, in your living room, wherever you're at right now. I'm going to say, Christ is risen, and then I want you to respond, say, you know what? Yes, he is risen indeed. So let's do that together. Ready? Christ is risen. Come on, let's do it again. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. But the question today is, is that true? 
See, one of the problems in the pandemic has been the prevalence of fake news. You've probably heard contradictory reports about how long this is going to last and what precautions are the right ones to take and appropriate social distant measurements, where the, the, the virus originated, whether 5G and the towers are making it worse, which medicines are going to work and which medicines are not, how fragile our medical system is, or all kinds of number of things. And what I've learned and we've learned as a nation is that fake news can be disastrous when you especially make major life decisions based on it. By the way, I learned this week that the first major scandal in our country involving fake news occurred in 1835 when the editor of a New York Times newspaper published a series of articles claiming there were signs of life discovered on the moon. And the articles, they begin to gain traction because they feature quotes misleadingly attributed to a celebrated astronomer named Sir John Herschel. And because no one knew where Professor Herschel actually was at the time, the editor thought, man, it would be very difficult to try to figure and track him down so the hoax would be safe. It became, in 1835, known as the Great Moon Hoax. To many people that are maybe even streaming today, the resurrection of Jesus sounds like fake news. To some people, it sounds like little more than wishful thinking. For others, it even sounds like um, something that we've made up because we can't handle the fact that we're all alone in this universe and that there's no sweet by and by to go to when we perish. Others assume that the accounts of the resurrection were were rumors made up over made up by overexcited religious zealots to give themselves kind of the trump card in religious controversies of the day. Because after all, if your leader rises from the dead, then you have the final word on whatever it is you're talking about. Maybe the inventing the resurrection was their ploy to gain power or their ploy to raise money. I mean, tragically, throughout history, we've seen religious charlatans do that very thing. And maybe that's what's happening within the resurrection. But this morning, there's a phrase repeated over and over in the Gospels that challenges that assumption, that interpretation of the events, and it's three words. It's come and see. It's a phrase we see repeated throughout the life of Jesus. In John 1, when Jesus reveals the fact that he is the Messiah to a man named Philip, he does so by revealing to Philip that he actually saw him before he actually saw him. He saw him under the tree. So Philip runs home and he tells his brother Nathaniel that he's met the Messiah. And Nathaniel just scoffs at him. You know what Philip's response is? John 1.46, come and see for yourself. In John 4, Jesus encounters a woman at a well. She's an outcast woman, shunned by her society. He does the same thing with her that he did with Philip. He starts revealing secrets about herself that she knows no one else knows about. So she runs away, and he cares for her anyways. But she runs into town, and what does she say? I've met the Messiah, the one promised by all the prophets. He told me everything I ever did. And they said, seriously, why would we listen to you? And you know what her response was? Come and see for yourself. If you're streaming live with us this morning for the first time, we are in week two of a series called Portraits of Christ. And I want to invite you to come and see Jesus' interaction with a woman in the garden the morning of the resurrection. See, coming to church or attending church on Easter is a tradition. It's a good one. But we realize as believers that have been born again, filled with the Spirit in a sense, every day is Resurrection Sunday. Because Christ lives in us. I want to share a message to you today that I'm entitling, When Jesus Calls Your Name. When Jesus Calls Your Name. I want to share a message that talks and shares with us a woman that 
that shows us what happens when Jesus calls our name. Now, I want you to think back just for a moment. Do you remember when Jesus called your name? Do you remember that day? Maybe you don't remember that day. But this is who this message is for today. This message is for anyone who's dealing with a health issue. This message today is for anyone that's dealing with a financial challenge. This message today is for anyone that's dealing with uh, uh, the doubts and saying, can God do anything with my life? You know, I remember vividly before I came to know Jesus at 16 years old, I was asking myself the same question. Can God do anything with my life? In some sense, I was burnt out. In some sense, life wasn't making sense. And little did I know, listen to me, little did I know what God was about to do when I completely surrendered my life to Him. And I want you to hear me, and I want you to see something this morning. You've got to get this, church. God can do more in your life in one moment than man or woman can manufacture in a lifetime. I want you to get that. I'm going to say it again. God can do more in one moment in your life than man or woman can manufacture in a lifetime. God can do more in one moment. And you say, well, Pastor Craig, you don't understand my situation. You don't know what I'm going through. No, I don't know your situation. That is true. But I do know the God I serve. And the God I serve is bigger than anything you're facing. He's bigger than anything that is a challenge in your life. And God can do more in your life today in a moment than you'll ever see anyone manufacture in your lifetime. But the key is this. You have to be willing to surrender to Him. So what we're going to study this morning is the passage of this encounter with Mary Magdalene with Jesus at the garden tomb. And what we will see in a moment is He turns her sorrow into joy. And it's all based upon her perspective. So turn with me to John chapter 20. I'm going to read. This is the word of the Lord. Starting in verse 11. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she was crying... She stooped. I want you to see this. Today's going to be a very visual message. She stooped to look into the tomb. Picture it. And she saw two angels in white there where Jesus' body had been laid. And they said to her, Woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she said. And I don't know where they've put him. Verse 14. Having said this, she turned around. Watch this. She just saw two miraculous angels. And that wasn't enough for her. She turned around, the Bible said. And she saw Jesus standing there. But she did not know it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? crying. Who is it that you're seeking? And supposing he was the gardener, she replied, Sir, if you've carried the body of Jesus, the cadaver of Jesus away, tell me where you put him and I'm going to take him away. And Jesus said to her, one word, one name, Mary. And turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. And then she grabs hold of him and she, he says, don't cling to me. Since I've not yet ascended to the Father, we'll talk about that in a minute. But go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and to your Father and to my God and to your God, Mary. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he had said to her. Would you pray with me right there? Father, there are many people that are streaming today in all kinds of different places in life. Lord, I just pray right now, by the power of your Spirit, you would speak to each life and each person, no matter where they are in their journey, would take their next step in their journey to you, Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to tell you three insights. Three insights today about Mary that I think will help us this morning as we consider this passage. Number one, I want you to see this. I want you to see Mary's devotion led her to the tomb. 
Mary's devotion led her to the tomb. Now let me just tell you who this is, okay? There are four Marys in the gospel, okay? A little bit confusing, follow with me. This is not Mary, the mother of Jesus, not this Mary. This is not Mary, the mother of uh, James and John, different Mary. This is not even Mary, the sister of Martha, uh, probably the younger sister of Martha and the older sister of Lazarus. This is not that Mary. This is the fourth Mary. This is Mary Magdalene. And, and she is the one that, if you remember, she was set free from seven demons on the Sea of Galilee, there at Magdala, where Mary was from. And now she's following Christ. And the text says that when she gets there, she's crying. Now this in the Bible is the term in John 20 for sobbing. This is not just shedding a tear. This is a woman at a typical Middle Eastern funeral crying out in pain. And now the question's begging to be asked, now why are you doing this, Mary? Like you should know what's going on here. Jesus already told you not once, not twice, but three times that he would die. He would suffer at the hands of criminals and he would be crucified, die, and he would on the third day rise again. Like Mary, what are you, what are you not seeing here? And I want to tell you today, I think it's this. I think it's simply that Mary is caught up in grief. You would be too. This is Jesus. This is our Lord who has set us free. This is the Lord who has performed miracles. This is the Lord who I've followed for three years of my life. And she's so consumed with grief and despair because he's dead. So the Bible says she decides, let me go on ahead and look into the tomb. Now watch this, watch this. She stoops down and looks into the tomb. And when she looks in the tomb, what does she see? She sees two angels. But she sees one at the head and she sees one at the foot. Now I don't know about you, but I'm done for for the rest of my life if I'm Mary. I mean, I, I don't know when's the last time you saw two angels, but when I reach down and see two angels, I'm thinking, that's enough. But that's not what Mary does, because just in a moment, she's going to say, I'm still looking for something else. But let's just pause here for a moment, church, and think about this. What John is showing us, I believe, is a visible picture of a principle in the Old Testament. See, it's hard for us as Americans to read the Bible the way Jews read the Bible, the Eastern culture. Why? Because we are products of our own environment. Meaning this, we as Western America, Americans, when we read and we learn, here's how we learn. We learn through bullet points, we learn through lists, and we learn through systematic treatises. That's how we learn. But that's not how Middle Easterners learn. There's nothing wrong with that. That's the way we learn as Westerners. But Easterners don't. Jewish culture in the day of Jesus, they didn't learn that way. They actually, here's the, catch this, they actually visualized when they heard and when they read, they visualized things in pictures. So check this out. Watch this. Mary looks in the tomb. She sees one angel on the right, one angel on the left. And what I think she is seeing is a recreation of the Ark of the Covenant. Let me take you back real quick to Exodus 25, real quickly. In Exodus chapter 25, you got to understand the Ark was the last piece of furniture separated by the veil that is torn at Jesus' death, right? And, and this veil separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And this is how God says to Moses to make the ark. Watch this. Verse 17, Exodus 25. Make a mercy seat out of pure gold, 45 inches long, 27 inches wide. Make two cherubim. What is cherubim? It's from the singular cherub. Cherub means angel. Cherubim means two or more angels. I want you to make two or more angels, one on one end, one at the foot, one at the head, and at its two ends, make the cherubim 
become of one piece, watch this, with the mercy seat. And God says, I will meet with you there above the mercy seat between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony. And God says to Moses and the children, I will speak from there about all that I command you regarding the Israelites. Now here's how it works. She's reaching down into the tomb. She looks over here and she sees one angel facing this way. She sees another angel facing this way. And what's happening? God is going to meet you there in that space between. But the big difference between Exodus 25 and John 20 come on I'm going to preach myself happy this morning is in the Old Testament between the angels was the presence of God but in John's gospel Jesus is no longer there which shows us because he died and because he was resurrected we don't need a temple anymore to access the presence of God we don't need a priest or a prophet to access the presence of God Mary looked down and realized that no longer is God sitting on the mercy seat for Jesus himself has occupied the throne of God. We don't need a person. We can now, as Hebrews tells us, approach boldly the throne of grace. There's no need for a mediator anymore. Why? Because Christ is our mediator. And she sees this. But I want you to see something. Unlike us, Mary is totally a different person. Because when was the last time you saw two angels? And Mary is not flustered by the angels. She says, I need to find Jesus. Look at verse 14. She turns around. Y'all, look at, look at verse 14. She saw the angels, two miraculous beings, and the very next verse says she turns. She turns. She turned around and saw Jesus. Y'all, Mary's heart is so burdened to find Jesus, she's not even distracted by two miraculous angels. Think about that just for a moment. Her heart's affection and her mind's attention is so on finding Jesus, she's not distracted by angels. I wonder this morning if that could be said about us. Have you ever thought about this? Maybe the reason you have a love affair with the things of this world is because Jesus doesn't occupy the throne of your heart. That maybe you have at some point confessed Him as Savior, but you've not made Him Lord, and maybe that's why you're so easily distracted. But that's not what Mary was like. No, no. She was so consumed with finding Jesus. Her devotion led her to the tomb. I think in so many ways, church, hear my heart. In so many ways in the Western church, we have collapsed our view of Christ, our Christology, into our view of salvation. So teriology. Jesus is our Savior, but He's no longer our Lord. We've made some confession of Him, but we've collapsed one into the other. And here we understand that Martha and her devotion is leading her to stop at nothing other than finding the cadaver of Jesus. Another point in the Gospels, Jesus is with a different Mary. Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. And Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet as He's teaching the Word. And Martha's in the kitchen getting preparations, making preparations, and Martha gets so frustrated, she comes bursting into the living room and says, do you not care, Jesus? I'm here slaving away, and my sister is sitting at your feet. And you know what he says? This is what Jesus says to that Mary. He says, Martha, or that Martha, 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 you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. And he said, Mary has chosen the good portion. She has chosen the good portion, and it will not be taken from her. It didn't say Mary found the good portion. It didn't say Mary happened on the good portion. Mary chose the good portion. That means you and I will never drift into devotion. We have to choose to prize the King Jesus. We have to choose to be like Mary of Magdalene, to 
go into the garden and say, I'm not stopping till I find Jesus. Notice Mary's devotion led her to the tomb. But here's the second thing. Are you ready? Mary's despair distracted her from seeing Jesus. So yes, Mary's devotion led her to Jesus, but Mary's despair actually distracts her from seeing Jesus. Her pain, her grief, actually, it actually distracted her. Look at verse 15. He says to her, Woman, why are you crying? He says, Who is it that you are seeking? Do you see that? Who is it that you're seeking? Pause, time out, leave that right there. You know how John's gospel starts? John chapter 1. John, John tells us that Jesus finds Simon's older brother or younger brother, Andrew. And Andrew comes and brings Peter to Jesus. His name's Simon at that time. And the first words out of Jesus' mouth in John's gospel, he turns and he says, what are you seeking, guys? And now we get at the end of the gospel and he says, who are you seeking? Notice what John's doing. What are you seeking has become who is your seeking. In other words, the something has become a someone and the something is someone named Jesus. That's who you're seeking. That's what you're heart really desires now y'all jesus doesn't ask a question because he's seeking an answer he's not saying to mary who is it you're seeking i think when jesus asked why are you crying listen follow me follow me i think he's giving her a mild rebuke he's saying mary like you knew this i told you this not once not twice but three times i told you And when he asked, who are you looking for? I think he's asking, what did you expect? This is what I said would happen. And it's not until Jesus moves from calling her woman as his creation to calling her Mary, which is a familial or family term that she recognizes Jesus for who he is. Can I tell you, when Jesus called her name, everything in Mary's life changed. And the good news this Easter morning is that Jesus is still in the business of calling names. He's still in the business of speaking your very name off of his very lips. Now I know despite Da Vinci Code a few years ago, there is no evidence that Mary Magdalene was ever married to Jesus. There was no evidence that Mary Magdalene ever had kids with Jesus. And those claims come from Gnostic documents that didn't get written until the third century. There is no document in the first or second century that ever says Mary Magdalene. They were trying to discredit Christianity. And Jesus looks at this woman and he calls her Mary. Now look, look, we have a hard time empathizing with this if we don't know the depth of despair that Mary was going through. So let me turn real quick to Luke chapter 8. And and I want to introduce you to Mary Magdalene. Because until we understand the depth of her despair, it's it's hard for us to sympathize with her. And and people, I think, today are going to resonate. I think you can resonate with Mary Magdalene. Not, Not because you're filled with a demon, but you're in bondage. You're bound up. And look at Luke chapter 8. Afterward, Jesus was traveling from one town and village to another. He was preaching and telling the good news of the kingdom. Did you know that's what Jesus did everywhere he went? He preached the gospel of the kingdom. And the twelve disciples were with him. Also some women who had been healed of evil spirits. Watch this. And sicknesses. Mary called Magdalene. Seven demons had come out of her. Y'all, focus in. This is not a sin. This is not she's just tripped into sin. This is an actual fallen spirit creature that is residing in her body. And the Bible says not just one demon, but seven demons. Two interpretations possible. It could be that there are seven different demons in her body. Seven different evil spirits. Or it could also be second interpretation. What does the number seven in Hebrew mean? Completion. So what we see here is a woman wholly bound... 
A woman fully demonized. A woman completely in bondage from this demonic presence. You know, many people say, well, can... Can Christians be filled with demons? Well, no, they can't. The answer is no. The Bible says that when you confess Jesus, repent and put faith in Christ, you become a born-again creation. The Spirit of God resides in you. Now watch this. Two spirits can't reside in the same vessel. But this is not the case for Mary. Mary before Christ was actually filled with demonic presence. And I want you to sense the despair in her life. Can you imagine the daily depression? If Mary's still living today, she's committed to a local hospital. If Mary's living today, she's an outcast. She's being put up for evaluation. But one day she meets King Jesus and he sets her free. And this is what's so cool about her. I love this about Mary Magdalene. When she gets set free from from her demons, she never leaves Jesus' side from that point on. She's always with him. You say, Craig, what do you mean? I believe Mary Magdalene is actually at the Last Supper. I think not only is she there with Jesus and his disciples, but I think Mary, the mother of Jesus, is at the Last Supper. Why wouldn't she be? This is the last, final Passover. I believe Mary, as Scripture tells us, is walking with Jesus to the cross, as we know from the text. Mary is at the foot of the cross. Where are the rest of the boys? The only one there is John. The rest of them have deserted Jesus. I believe Mary was there when Nicodemus and Joseph of Amarathia, they took the cadaver of Jesus and put it in the borrowed tomb. It's Mary who comes back to the tomb, not once, not twice, but three times. Get this, three times Mary has gone back from her house, back to the garden. And what Mary is showing us is so amazing, church. Because she lingered at the tomb, she reaps a rich reward. Here's why. Number one, because she's hanging around, what happens? She gets to see two angels. John and Peter, if you read John 20, the first six verses, John and Peter were just there. They didn't get to see two angels. Number two, Mary is going to be the first person who sees the resurrected Christ. How cool is that? She's the first person ever. And then number three, Mary is the first person to ever hear Jesus speak in resurrected form. you got to get this, DP. What's the point? Here's the point. Love lingers. Love lingers. See, when you truly love somebody, you want to be around them. You want to linger around them. Mary was going and honoring the last place the body of her Lord was laying. Mary wanted to be around Jesus. She was honoring His burial place. I wonder how many of us would have missed Jesus in the resurrected form because we are too busy with life. We have our schedules and we have our agendas and we have all that we need to do. I often ask myself the question, would I even have have lingered long enough to see Jesus? You've got to understand this. When, When God created humans, He did not create us as human doings. He created us as human beings. See, a wonderful biblical principle is that before you can do anything for the Lord, you have to be in Christ first. And Mary shows us she lingers long enough. But not only does she linger long enough, she's ready to do something, right? you got to love it. She's like Jesus, who she thinks is the gardener. She speaks to him and says, hey, tell me where his body is and I'll bring him back. Now, Mary, come on. You're a 125-pound body going to drag back a 175-pound man. Could she have done it? Probably not. But you got to love her devotion. you got to love that she's there. you got to love that she is able to be there that moment. And here's what's baffling. Here is what got me. Look at the text. Why does she suppose he's a gardener? Anybody ever wondered that? Of all the professions, I mean, stonemason, I could see that. Carpenter, I could see that. Roman soldier, could be. But a gardener, why? 
Mary, the text says, supposing he was a gardener. Now, why is that important? I think it's interesting that of all places, Jesus comes back in a garden. Think about this. Jesus could have come back in any place. The text doesn't say she thinks he is a gardener. The text says she thinks he's the gardener. In the Greek here, it is the definitive article, the. Not the, not the, the, the other article, a or an. It is the. So she thinks he is the gardener. The Jewish culture, remember, they don't think like us. When they hear the word the gardener, because they know the Old Testament well, where God introduces the first gardener. You know where God introduces the first gardener? Their minds go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. They go, how cool is this? Catch this. Genesis chapter 2, Utopia. It's a place called Eden. This is amazing. Genesis 2, a creation of Adam and Eve. And remember, Adam is the representation of the entire human race. The sin that affects all of us came through Adam. And this is what the Bible says in Genesis 2.8. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he placed the man he had formed. And the Lord God took the man, Adam, and placed him in the garden of Eden. Watch this. To work it and watch over it. Notice that. Who is the gardener? Who was the first gardener in God? Who was the first gardener in all the human race? It was Adam. I think, y'all, it is mind-blowing and not by accident that when Mary is in the garden, she turns around and mistakes Jesus for the profession of Adam. You say, Craig, why is that important? Because the last time God was in perfect communion with humanity and creation was in Eden, in a garden, and Adam and Eve fell and infected the entire human race and the harmony was severed. And is it any wonder, church, that when Jesus Christ comes back on the scene, He comes where? Where does He appear? You find Him in a garden. You know what we're seeing here, church? We are seeing the reversal of the literal curse of the fall. The resurrection this morning morning is the clarion call from the angels to the ends of the earth there there is a hope after death because Jesus conquered death I don't have time to show all of them to you but if you go look at the text in John 20 it parallels Genesis 2 John Genesis 2 it was darkness and void John 20 Mary came to the tomb while it was dark Genesis 2 God asked where are you Adam John 20 Mary asked where have they taken him Genesis 2 the first gardeners John 20 Jesus mistaken as a gardener Genesis 2 clothed themselves in leaves John uh, 20 Jesus put off the grave clothes Genesis 2 Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden John John 20, Mary is commissioned to share the gospel out of a new garden. Genesis 2, the angels are guarding Eden. John 20, the angels are guarding the empty tomb. But it's even deeper than that. And if we read it casually, we'll miss it. It wasn't just Adam who sinned first in the garden, it was Eve. Now, albeit it was Adam's fault because he wasn't there, but it wasn't Adam that sinned first, it was Eve. And the reason Eve fell, watch this, is because she believed a lie. What did the serpent say? Did God really say this? And you have to believe that when she took the fruit and ate herself, she then turns to her husband and she transfers the fruit to him with the same lie. She says to her husband the same thing. Did God really say this? So in the Bible, watch this, we see the mother of all living, the first woman passing on the fruit to Adam and a lie that accompanies it. And because of that, sin affects all humans. Is it any wonder 
that when Jesus Christ comes back, he happens to speak to a woman and a garden. And the only difference is this. As one woman brought lies into the world that caused mankind to suffer sin, now we have another woman bringing the truth of the gospel on her lips of the resurrection to the world. If it were not for women folks and women preachers, we would have no news of the resurrection. Jesus was told and was revealing himself first and foremost to a woman. Why do you tell us that, Pastor Craig? Because I want you to see that the entire Bible is one single continuous story. It's a meta narrative wherein history passed, eternity passed. God took a thread and he started weaving together a tapestry of a story that started in the past that will continue in the future and it uses us in the present. Aren't you glad that God uses us in his grand story in the present? Listen to me. The history of the world and your own personal story is being written through the same finger. It's God's. But she's not just seeing Jesus. It's way more than that. Jesus actually empowers and entrusts her to bring a message. And that's the third thing I want to share as I close. Thirdly, we see Mary is empowered to share the message with the disciples. Mary's encounter empowered her to share. Verse 17, look at the text says again, that don't cling to me, Jesus said. Now, don't miss this. Jesus is not being mean here. Since I've not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and tell them that I'm ascending my Father and your Father to my God and your God. Mary is the first missionary of the resurrection. Now, come on, Jesus. You won't, you won't let this woman hang on. I mean, she's in grief. Come on, give her a break. She's in sorrow. Why not let her cling? It almost seems like Jesus is being negative here, but he's not. Let me tell you what he's doing. What Jesus is saying is, Mary, it's right for you to mourn. It is. But Mary, you don't have a clue what I'm about to do. Because I'm risen and I have risen from the dead, my relationship with you and my relationship to my disciples and my relationship to the world is about to change. I'm moving from being known and being with you locationally by proximity and by being among you. And now that I've been raised from the dead, I will move from being with you to living within you. So stop clinging to me in physical proximity because I'm going to fill you with my presence. We now as his children have the Holy Spirit that are living within us. So that where we go, the Lord goes with us. But I think this passage, it shows one last thing. And I think that is the greatest apologetic for the resurrection. Some of you may be streaming today and you say, I don't, I don't know if I believe in a resurrection. Did a man really get up from the grave? Okay, I got that. But if I was going to manufacture a story and make it up, who am I going to tell that story to so that it ultimately is reliably accepted by the world. Think about that. I'm probably going to show myself to the high priest and say, hey, you put me to death three days ago, but how do you like me now? Jesus doesn't do that. Think about it. Why did he never go to the high priest in all of his 40 days? Why did he never go to a Pharisee in all of his 40 days of resurrection? Why did he never go to a Jewish religious leader in his 40 days of resurrection? How do you like me now? He doesn't do that. Oh, I'm going to go show myself to a Pharisee. Jesus doesn't do that. He didn't show himself to a scribe. He didn't show himself to his own family. They're there that day. He didn't show himself to his family. They were there. He didn't show himself to his disciples. Peter and John just showed up at the tomb six verses earlier. Watch this. When God decides to show himself to the world that the resurrection is true, he shows himself to a woman. And here's why that's a big deal. Albeit wrong, when 
women were not even able to testify in court in Jesus' day. They had no power and rights. And yet God is now going to entrust the greatest message in the world to a woman, but not just any woman, a woman who was formerly demon-possessed, who was outcast and depressed, who was literally wholly bound by devil and by bondage itself. And now she's going to be the greatest Witness to the resurrection of Jesus. Why would he do this, y'all? It makes no practical sense. Here's why he does this. Don't you miss the character of God this resurrection morning? He does this because this is how our God operates. He loves taking broken vessels and using them for his glory. And you know how I know that? Because he uses me and because he uses you. God God uses us and people look at us and say, if God can use Pastor Craig, I know God can use me. You know what he does? He takes former adulterers. He takes former addicts. He takes former alcoholics. He takes formal prideful, sinful, selfish people. He takes formal drug addicts and outcasts and those that are disenfranchised and he puts them on display as trophies of his grace. Now, why would he do that, Pastor Craig? So that he alone can get all the glory. Now I know what you're thinking. That's a good story, Pastor Craig, but God could never do that in my life. That was 2,000 years ago. You know, I used to think the same thing. Before I came to Jesus, I did. I used to look at Christians and think, you know what, there's not much to that. I used to think I knew what it meant to be on mission. But can I tell you something now on this side of the threshold of faith, now on this side of since I've met Jesus, let me tell you something. I had no idea what I was missing on that other side. And you don't either because you think you know, but you really don't know. And I'm not asking today, listen to me, you, you just follow with me. I'm not asking today, did you say a prayer when you were a kid? Because frankly, in Bible Belt, Georgia, everybody streaming today has probably said a prayer. I'm not even talking about if you can get your Bible off the shelf right now and go to the front and say this Bible was presented to you on the day you supposedly came to faith. Here's what I'm asking this morning. As you look at your present life right now, has your life changed today as a result of a radical, transformational salvation experience with God? Have you truly tasted and seen that the Lord is good? That's what I'm asking. Do you remember a time in your life where God took you from death to life? life where God took you from darkness to light listen I'm asking you are you experiencing peace in the midst of whatever circumstance you're in right now that in the world the world doesn't even have a category for why you are experiencing what you're experiencing that is what I'm talking about this morning and one of the most mind-blowing things about this passage is that Mary for some reason was unable to recognize Jesus like she's been with him for years she's heard him speak Oh, I know why, Pastor Craig, because she had tears in her eyes. No, I think it's deeper. I think what we're seeing here is something that happens to all of us if we're honest. Mary is so consumed. She's so consumed with grief that her vision is clouded. She's so enveloped by her circumstances and her pain and shame and uncertainty that she can't clearly see Jesus until Jesus does what? He calls her name. And it's at that moment... She realized who he is and everything changes. But listen to me, church. you got to understand this. Nothing changes for Mary other than her perspective. Jesus doesn't say, I'm sorry, Mary, for dying. I'm going to go back. I'm going to rewind three days and not die. I'm so sorry. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, Mary, I, I know you don't want me only here for 40 days. I'll change my agenda in heaven. I'll make an extended stay. No. He didn't say, hey, let me take the pain away. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. 
In a sense, nothing in Mary's life changes but her perspective. But when her perspective changes, everything changes for her. See, here's what you are thinking right now. This can't happen to me. Come on, Jesse. I'm here to tell you this morning, it doesn't matter what you faced. It doesn't matter what you're going through in life. It doesn't matter what you're experiencing right now, what sins you've committed. It doesn't matter how checkered your past is. I want to tell you, if you today truly surrender your life to Christ, He can do more in a moment than man or woman can manufacture in a lifetime. Could it be the reason you're not seeing Jesus this morning, friend, is you're letting circumstances envelop you? It's clouding your vision. You have, you have let the past and grief and shame cloud your perspective, and you can't see Jesus for who He is. Do you today, sitting there, remember the day that Jesus called your name? I believe the same Jesus Christ who called Mary, Mary by name and who called Craig Mosgrove by name on February uh, 20 or 10th, 2002, is going to call you by name today. And he's asking you today to give complete surrender. Look at me right there, wherever you're at. He's asking you for to give your life to him once and for all. And so many of you are saying, well, let me clean myself up first, Pastor Craig, and then I'll come to God. Let me take care of some things and then I'll come to God. You know what I always say to people? When do you go to the doctor? Do you go to the doctor when you're healthy or when you're sick? You don't go to the doctor when you're healthy. You go to the doctor when you're sick just as you are. And I'm telling you today, the Lord says, come just as you are with all your addicts, all your hangups, all of your habits, all of your brokenness, all of your despair and shame. And listen, for every one look at your sin, you need to take 10 looks at Jesus this morning. For every one look at your, your despair, you need to take 25 looks at the risen Son of God. I want to tell you today, look to Jesus and see His righteousness, not your rebellion. Look to Jesus and see His fidelity, not your failure. Look to Jesus today and see His beauty and not your burden. Look to Jesus today and see His love and not your lethargy. Look to Jesus and see His mercy, not your misery. Look to Jesus and see His death that averted your own death. Look to Jesus and see His resurrection assuring your own. I was where you were 18 years ago, y'all. I was where you were. And if God would have told me God would have told me what he was going to do with my life. I would have never, ever, ever believed him. I would have never believed him 18 years ago when he called my name. I would have never believed that he could have brought about the transformation he did. But boy, did he. And this first Easter launched the Easter of the entire cosmos. Oh yeah, his Easter means your personal Easter, but it means the Easter of everything. Look with me in Luke, 1 Corinthians 15 in the message. Oh my goodness, look at this passage. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 16 through 20 in the message translation. Look what the Bible says. This is what the text says. I want you to see it. Such a powerful, powerful passage. Do you have it today? He said, if corpses can't be raised, then Christ wasn't. Because he was indeed dead. And if Christ weren't raised, then all you're doing is wandering about in the dark as lost as ever. It's even worse for those who died hoping in Christ and resurrection because they're already in their graves. If all we get out of Christ is a little inspiration for a few short years, we're a pretty sorry lot. But the truth is that Christ has been raised up. And his was the first. And a long legacy of those who are going to leave the cemeteries. <laughs> I want to tell you today, leave the cemetery. 
Jesus is calling you to leave the cemetery of your sin. Leave the cemetery of your despair. And if you're right there in your room and you're hearing His voice and you're sensing His presence, bow your eyes, bow your head and close your eyes. And I want to pray that the same resurrection power that changed my life in 2002 will change yours right now. As the band comes, I want you right there in your home to sit quietly. I'm not going to say a thing. He's going to continue to play keys, but I want you to linger in Jesus' presence for one or two moments. Linger in His presence right there. Hallelujah, Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.